You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. joining us online. Uh, you're very, very welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub on a really wintry evening. It doesn't feel right, does it? Here we are. It's supposed to be spring and it's sort of wintry outside, which means that you guys really want to be here. And so it's lovely to be able to welcome you. Um, my name's Jane Olmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. And all I really want to do is welcome you and just to say a few words about the Hub and then just a few words about the series and then I'm going to hand over uh, to um, uh, my colleague and the champion of the Identities Research theme, uh, Professor Daniel Foss, who will chair uh, the uh, proceedings. So firstly, a word or two about the Trinity Long Room Hub. Can I ask, is this the first time anyone has visited? Do you all come in here regularly? Oh, well, Mike, you're really welcome. So then I will just say it's a research institute in the arts and humanities. And we really do three things in here. The first thing we do is celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities at Trinity, which is obviously a very a tradition that goes back to the early 17th century uh, and continues to the present day. Um, the second thing we do is promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And actually, this series is a fabulous example of how the importance of having academics from different disciplines talk and engage uh, with each other. The third thing we do is public humanities. So we believe passionately that we want to take the learnings of the arts and humanities to the widest possible audiences. Um, we probably host about 250 events a year, uh, including signature lecture series uh, like this, um, uh, which we then, of course, podcast. And interestingly, to, you know, our podcasts are listened to by people around the world, and in fact, most of our audience for our podcasts are not based here in Ireland. So I think, again, it's lovely to be able to, to do that. Um, in terms of this particular lecture series, Trinity and the Changing uh, City, it really was the brainchild of a number of colleagues. Uh, and again, I just want to acknowledge the work that um, Tom Walker from the School of English, Daniel Foss, who's the convener of the, uh, as I say, the Identities theme, who's based in the Department of Sociology, and Sarah Kerr. Uh, it's Sarah's birthday tonight, folks. Um, anyway, happy birthday, Sarah. I'm not going to invite everybody to sing happy birthday because that would just be too embarrassing for words for you. But, but actually, Sarah has done an absolutely amazing job. She works very closely with the Identities theme and the Making Ireland theme, and she has done all the legwork behind this. And I suppose what I'm trying to say is that we in the Hub are so grateful um, to um, our academic colleagues uh, for making these sorts of initiatives the success they are. This is sadly the final uh, lecture in this series. Can I get a sense of, have many of you been at a number of these? Yes, yeah. And have you, well, the fact you're, you're still coming back is a sign that you've liked them. Um, uh, the, we were chattering about whether or not we should continue this series um, into the next academic year, and obviously we are thinking uh, about that. So uh, your feedback um, is extremely important to us, so we'll be contacting you uh, for that. Um, before I hand over to uh, Daniel, though, um, we would invite everybody to uh, turn their mobile phones to silent, but to feel free to tweet. Now, I joined Twitter on Monday, so I'm a novice uh, uh, when it comes to tweeting, but I've been having great fun making a mess of it, of course, as I go along. Um, but I actually think, you know, it's really important. So those of you who are tweeters, 
uh, where's our hashtag, uh, Hub Matters, and then our handle is at uh, uh, TLR uh, uh, Hub. So, uh, where's the, uh, it's not there. Anyway, the, the hashtag we'd love to use is um, uh, Hub Matters, um, and the handle is at TLRH uh, Hub. So without further ado, um, I am going to hand over uh, to Daniel, who will introduce the speakers and um, chair the proceedings. But again, you're all very welcome, and thank you so much uh, for coming out on such a miserable old night. Daniel. Well, hello, everyone. Good evening, and thanks to Jane for opening tonight's uh, panel discussion, which is the sixth and final event in the Trinity and the Changing City Lecture Series, um, organised by uh, the Identities and Transformation team and generously supported by the Trinity Long Room Hub, where we're in tonight. Throughout the series, we've addressed uh, the major and at times quite difficult um, issues facing Dublin and its inhabitants in open and very frank discussions. And tonight, we will continue in the same spirit. There's been very little public debate on class in Dublin compared to other social issues, like migration, for example, which we had uh, several months ago, or the languages that, that are being spoken around Dublin. Yet there are many class signals that lots of Dubliners can read, including accent, neighbourhood, educational background. So social class is not only difficult to break out of, but it also impacts the life chances and health of Dubliners. So we have four speakers who will shed light on one of the final taboos in Irish society. And the first one up tonight is Dr. Carol Houlihan, who is Assistant Professor in Modern Irish History here in Trinity. And her first monograph, Reframing Irish Youth in the 60s, was published last year with Liverpool University Press, and she's currently working on the history of poverty. So without further ado, Carol, the floor is yours. Welcome. Uh, when Daniel emailed us a few weeks ago, he suggested that we could um, use personal experiences as well as disciplinary perspectives, that they were both fine to include in our presentations. And I come from history, and so from a discipline where very often personal experience is supposed to be left at the door, like a pair of very mucky shoes before you walk on a new cream carpet of rationality and documentary evidence. But I will defy convention and tell of a personal experience in order to illustrate something about the discipline of history in Ireland, although I'm not 100% sure what exactly it shows. In 2002, I attended an examiner's dinner with historians from UCD, where I was working as a tutor. And I ended up sitting beside a very nice, older and jovial man, a professor of history. When the food came, he pointed out that I used my knife and fork in the wrong hands. That's okay, I said. I'm just working class. His quick response has given me pause for thought ever since. He said, that might do something for you in a politics department, Carol, but not in a history one. <laughs> I have since worked in three history departments, and I worked on 20th century Irish social history. Uh, I focus largely on the 1960s and on the Republic of Ireland. So for the next couple of minutes, I'll give my personal whistle-stop take on class and Irish history and I'll address the way in which the former has featured in the latter, what it means for social historians like myself, and I'll end then with a discussion of a recently published book that I think really gets across the complexities of class in the Irish context. Historically, the discipline of history meant the study of political history. It tracked wars and revolutions, 
state-making and building by male heroes. And this was imparted to the public through education systems and commemorative events to inspire patriotism and to build national identity. The national story and the nation state as a, un as a unit of study was key to the discipline. And in this way, the Irish story was one of nationalism and of course, unionism. This was the great ideological divide which smothered class difference at the ballot box. Religion and politics often neatly dovetailed. In the 19th century, on the predominantly rural and relatively poor island, the churches battled, battled for the souls of the many poor and for the education of the better off. In the case of the Catholic Church, its political and economic fortunes rose with the advance of what we could call the middling classes. This resulted in an institutional church that acted as an arbiter and agent of respectability, keenly sensitive to the gradations of status and class <clears throat> and the materialism that that implied. Despite the importance of these gradations, nationalism and unionism produced a rhetoric of political and religious unity and moral superiority, which underpinned both the Irish Free State and the State of Northern Ireland when they were established. For the 20th century, class, labour and the left is not, of course, entirely missing in the Irish historiography, but it isn't often the chief focus, as its political strength was relatively weak. In the Republic of Ireland, the nature of the Irish story meant that, that a tale of a 26-county us, or we, that could be incorporated under a Catholic and nationalist umbrella was potent, and it suggested, therefore, that our governments and our institutions could only ever engage in pragmatic action. To see class was to be ideological, an instigator of division. The problems caused by the concept of the united us are, of course, legion. They're on display in the current television ad for an insurance company that celebrates the introduction of free education in 1967, but neglects to mention how many working class children availed of vocational education from the 1930s. They're clear in the essays of a few history undergraduates who continually note that the marriage bar prevented women from working ignoring all those women who had no choice but to work. As working class Dubliners such as Johnny Giles and Fintan O'Toole have noted, there are also cultural as well as socioeconomic factors that leave people outside the we and us that can constitute Irishness, whether that's through a childhood playing soccer or one reading British comics. The concept of a united us was dramatically undermined in the 1990s as the abuse and neglect that went hand in hand with industrial schools and reformatories became a public issue, and later the experiences of women and so-called illegitimate children in marital laundries and mother and baby homes have shown the lengths that a society will go to to protect an idea. Despite this, the malleability of the pronoun we, its ability to push people out and draw them in, is impressive. And this was most evident after the recent financial crash, when it turned out that we had all gone mad borrowing and of course we had all partied. The we is often a product of talking about the political, the nation and the state, and the focus on the political, given the live nature of constitutional questions and the recent troubles, is entirely understandable. Although it should be noted that the class dimension of the civil rights movement that preceded the outbreak of the troubles has not been neglected. As social historians are more concerned with groups and individuals than states and governments, we're more inclined to multiple rather than grand narratives. Class features in Irish social history in the history of landlords, tenants and labourers, in the groups who were often forced to emigrate and form the diaspora, in urban history where class is reflected in residential segregation, and in studies of charity and welfare where the differences between givers and receivers are clear. 
I currently work on the history of poverty, and the idea that poverty bred immorality was very potent in a relatively poor society, despite attempts to reframe it as a national asset. That stigma and abuse could characterise the experience of poverty as a growing body of social history, the reports of government commissions and institutions, and memoir attests. They've really undone notions of moral superiority. And this recent history gives us a new lens with which to look back on modern Irish history and to rewrite it with class as its central feature. But that isn't to suggest that there are only two classes of people to contend with, an imagined us and then the so-called deviants that we or they try to hide. If we take a longer view back to the early 19th century, specifically at Neil O'Keeson's excellent study of the poor inquiry of the 1830s, we can see that the state commissioners investigating Irish poverty they found that English social categories did not work in an Irish context. Some people held distinctions that meant they crossed these categories, and poverty encompassed so much of the population. Joe Cleary argues that economic instability made clear class formation difficult, that classes were often in flux, and that the issue with Ireland is that there are too many classes, rather than too few. And this variety is then reflected in the work of those in the, working on the 20th century. Katrina Clear describes the readership of Women's Life magazine in the 1930s as that of the middle-slash-lower-middle-slash-working class. On another occasion, she talks about the labouring-slash-working the class bringing the rural and the urban worker together. Alexander Humphrey's famous study, New Dubliners, Urbanisation of the Irish Family, he examines families belonging to the artisan class, the employer-managerial class, the clerical class, and then the general labourer class. The historical study of class in the Irish context is tricky, and this perhaps more than anything explains its neglect. I want to finish with a note on methodology and an example of a recent study that brings the complexity of class in Ireland to life. Historians of Ireland have often stayed away from theoretical frameworks and have been empirical in approach, and that can sometimes produce an accidents and personalities approach to account for change, instead of looking at long-term social, economic and ideological factors. Our focus on the archives makes us different to many other disciplines in the humanities, and that's our chief strength. However, the broadest understanding of what constitutes the archive is essential for a full understanding of class, as are multiple and varied approaches. Official and institutional sources will have to be read against the grain. Personal narratives, including oral histories and memoirs, have to be taken seriously. Folklore and popular culture sources probed. Micro-historical and ethnographic approaches encouraged. Lindsay Erna Byrne's recent study, Letters of the Catholic Poor, published by Cambridge two years ago, offers a close reading of begging letters, written by those asking for charity from the Archbishop of Dublin in the 1920s and 30s, and the responses to them. And she explains the assessment and decision-making process of the Archbishop and the team in Drumcondra, as they sought to distinguish between the deserving and undeserving cases. And she concludes that the generationally poor were likely to be blamed for their poverty, while those who had seen better days experienced a more empathetic charity encounter. In essence, your historic economic status dictated how much charity you received. One pound for the prisoner's wife to buy extras for Christmas, 50 for the solicitor whose ill health meant that secondary school education of his children was at risk. Preventing slipping the descent of the middle or the lower middle classes into stations beneath them was a key function of Catholic charity. And in this example, we see how the status quo was upheld. And we can also see in this book how slipping was a real worry for many. Economic instability <coughs> um, made more than just the working class vulnerable to poverty. 
At the same time, in examining the testimony of individuals and not just the position of certain groups, uh, Lindsay's study illuminates the grey hues of class that often underpin economic status but can be read in many different ways. They then inform the nature of encounters, the availability of opportunity, and whether or not one receives the benefit of the doubt. Studies like this suggest to me that the future of class in Irish history lies in the social and also in the personal, which of course is always political. Mm. Thank you very much, Carol. We're delighted to be joined tonight also by Dr. Michael Pierce. He's a senior lecturer in Irish literature at Queen's University in Belfast. His research mainly explores the writing and cultural production of Irish working class life, and over recent years, his work has expanded into new multidisciplinary themes and international contexts, including the study of festivals and theatre as research practices. Welcome, Michael. Um, I, th I think actually the, the email on, on to us on, on whether it was we could speak about personal and academic stuff was because it, it was prompted by me, Daniel, because I. Emailed you and I said, could, could, could I speak about um, personal stuff at, at, at this? And, it's, and I've never done this before, because normally you do at academic um, talks, you, you just um, you steer, steer clear of things like that. But um, you know, Carol's anecdote there reminds me of Patrick McGill, the uh, Donegal writer, and uh, an episode in Children of the Dead End where he arrives in London and um, extraordinarily for someone who started off as a potato picker, a migrant worker in, in Scotland, ends up being a journalist um, at, the, at the heart of London society. And he describes a, a kind of comic uh, interlude of, of arriving in a restaurant for the first time and sweating profusely at the idea of how to hold which fork and which knife. And of course beneath the comedy there's, there's a kind of a psychological struggle there. A sense of being a fish out of water, of not being in the right place, or not being the kind of person who ends up here. And I think actually people who come from uh, working class backgrounds and who, who end up in academia often uh, feel this acutely too. Um, on the programme for today's event, there's a statement near the end, it reads as follows There is a representative gap between the city in which Trinity resides, and not least in terms of language, race, and class and the images and narratives of that city put forth in the broader culture. I think that's definitely true. As a former student at this university, coming here from a background of unemployment and poverty in inner city Dublin, I had very mixed experiences within it, in terms of how class for me was felt to recall E.P. Thompson's phrase um, as a relationship and not a thing. What Thompson meant, of course, that class is a bit more than graphs, illustration, illustrating divisions of wealth, but it's all about relationships to wealth, to each other, to historic forces, but also to representation. These relationships are far more uh, than mere designators of social positioning. They're sometimes the origins of deeply personal traumas and life-defining wounds that go far beyond the economic per se. As Richard Sennett and Jonathan Cobb argued in their study, The Hidden Injuries of Class, class is not simply some sort of abstract idea or measure of income inequality, but a lived reality of everyday life. They interviewed people who felt disrespected or undervalued because of their class. This was the burden of class, they said. 
through which working class people were deprived of any feeling of secure dignity. Senator Cobb wrote of how working class people felt demeaned in the eyes of others and of themselves because social differences appear as questions of character, of moral resolve, will and competence. Other pioneering sociologists such as Pierre Bourdieu and Beverly Skeggs have noted similar feelings of uh, internal division amongst their interviewees. They show how these feelings are compounded by popular representations in the media, literature and <coughs> elsewhere. Leon Ray has also shown how much all of this is experienced psychosocially, how much we internalise feelings of worthlessness and shame, even if on an intellectual level we can notionally reject them. Ray wrote in one study of young British girls in educational contexts that by the age of 10 they inhabit a psychic economy of class defined by fear, as she put it, anxiety and unease, a place where they are seen as, and see themselves as literally nothing. For me as someone growing up in inner city Dublin, 17 minutes walk from here, or at least that's how fast I could walk it uh, 20 years ago, um, <laughs> getting into Trinity seemed like getting the keys to a world where I could be something. Yet I also carried with me those hidden injuries of class, those memories that never leave you of feeling like nothing. Of being followed around shops by security guards because you look with your tight hair and your poor clothes, like someone suspicious, of not feeling able to invite schoolmates to your house in 1990s Dublin because you had an outdoor toilet and a tin bath to wash in. I entered Trinity very well balanced, as a friend of mine might put it, I had a chip on both shoulders. <laughs> education for me was vitally important. I started in TCD three years after the Education Minister, Neil Brannock, announced the abolition of third-year fee, third level fees. At the time, Brannock had said that abolishing fees will have a tremendous psychological impact. For me, no doubt, did. Yet other barriers, not all of them as visible as these, remain. I will never forget one particular incident that drove this point home to me, even as I had become a successful undergraduate student at Trinity. It must be now around 18 years ago, when I arranged one day to meet a friend of mine from the flats in Hardwick Street for lunch. He said he'd come over to me and we arranged to meet at the Campanile, that iconic bell tower in Trinity's front square. When I received a text from him to say that he'd been expelled from the university grounds, I first thought it was a joke. When I rang him, my friend Paul said he had been evicted from the campus for no reason. He said he would never set foot in the place again, and I suspect he couldn't bring himself to meet me elsewhere, as he was by then too angry, or maybe beneath the surface ashamed. I was incensed and immediately made my way to the headquarters office. There he explained that Paul was acting suspiciously. How, I inquired, he'd been seen loitering in the square with a bag on his back was the reply. I asked the man to leave his office at Front, at front Arch and when we were outside I pointed to a range of people standing at buildings in TCD's Parliament Square with bags on their backs. Are they suspicious, I said. He nodded reluctantly, conceding the point. He was a decent man and brought me back into his office to explain that the staff who had evicted my friend were new. I know what they, why they threw him out, I told him. He looks like someone from the inner city. He looks working class. The head porter admitted that this seemed to be the case. He himself was a working class dub. There were a lot of bicycle thefts around Trinity at that time. 
and it was undoubtedly the case that my friend, with his haircut, his choice of clothing, and other distinctive features, was deemed suspicious. His experience that day was another of the life-defining events, events that less uh, well-off uh, people encounter daily. Paul, though amazingly considering his own lack of educational achievement till then, nonetheless ended up on an access scheme in UCD a couple of years later. He had a very difficult um, background, uh, a difficult upbringing, with an alcoholic father and, and members of his family who were uh, heroin addicts. But Paul had till then firmly eschewed that trap, was resolutely anti-drugs, and seemed like someone who might buck the trend. And as he dropped out of UCD in his first year there, finding the course too challenging and the environment too alienating, he died two years later, in his early twenties, in his sleep. He had contracted pneumonia but had taken so much cocaine that he didn't know he was sick. The priest at his funeral recalled that the last time he'd seen Paul he was sitting on the steps of Havoc Street Flats reading Vladimir Lenin. When I published a history of a, a work, Irish working class writing with Cambridge University Press last year, I dedicated the book to him. My own trajectory as a researcher and academic be begins with such incidents and experiences, but it began also inside classrooms with great teachers and educators, both in my secondary school, Kloshtawira, and here in TCD. Here I first encountered the concept of working class writing in Dr. Aileen Douglas's course on British working class fiction, which had a profound effect on both my career and my capacity to understand and analyse the dynamics behind class. Reading British writers like Robert Tressel, George Gissing, Nell Dunn, Pat Barker and Irvin Welsh, I discovered a wealth of experience that, across national boundaries, um, resonated in various ways with my own. This sparked my interest in the possibilities of an Irish tradition of working class writing, which led to a PhD in Trinity with um, Dr Paul Delaney. I owe a great deal of my own career success to TCD. I recently had the great privilege also of one of my own PhD students, uh, the famous poet Rachel Hegarty, graduating from Queen's after coming also to us from Trinity. And Rachel, a wonderful poet and person, uh, teaches on the uh, TAP course, the Trinity Access Programme here, where I know she does a wonderful job in paying forward the opportunities that she's been given by education um, uh, to other working class university entrants who still most likely won't feel much at home in places like this, but will hopefully someday feel at least they have as much right to be here as anybody else. Part of our feeling of at home at the university is the extent to which the university acknowledges, takes action on and produces research on the sort of issues that I've just outlined. My own work attempts to do this by drawing attention to how the Irish working class has been represented and the extent to which it has articulated its, its experiences and all of their contradictions and complexity in drama, fiction, poetry, biography and other forms of creativity. Others like Dr Fergal Finnegan and Manute, for example, draw attention to the experiences of working class people in the academy itself, how class is felt in classrooms, social interactions, on the curriculum and in other aspects of students' lives. As Simon J. Charlesworth observes, in his study of English working class life, the experience of formal education has consequences for working class people's relation to the disposition of learning, one that makes it an experience of anxiety that can be confronted only through a heightened, even extreme tension. In a recent comparative study of the experiences of working class English and Irish university students, Finnegan along with Bar Bar Barbara Merrill find promising strides 
towards greater equality through widening participation measures in higher education. But they also note more depressingly the endurance of feelings of alienation among working class students. The Irish working class students they spoke to had a very strong sense of class. One third of people interviewed spontaneously chose to describe themselves in class terms, mainly as working class but also disadvantaged and not posh. More significantly, awareness of class emerged through the descriptions of everyday life and how this is affected by limited access to material and cultural resources. A high proportion had at university experienced a feeling of dislocation or at least a sense of social distance from the dominant culture in universities. One of the Irish students even describing the academy as a foreign country. Those attending elite institutions were particularly alienated. In some cases, interviewees discussed going through the difficult and painstaking process of cultural adaptation. And as Finnegan and Merrill conclude, these accounts of fitting or not fitting in at university were often discussed as something which was felt as embodied and deeply emotional by the students. We can all play our part in universities in recognising and attending to those embodied and deeply emotional experiences in finding ways of mitigating alienation, of genuinely widening participation. And I'm glad that Trinity is encouraging debates on these matters, like with this evening's event. Often the work is being conducted by working class amphibians, as Marcel Lacarche terms them, those scholars from working class backgrounds who she argues act as a bridge between working class and academic sensibilities. And there is a difference. Um, so often I find that colleagues from middle class backgrounds are obsessed with prestige, with a careerist individualistic ethic increasingly aligned to metrics and competition between uh, higher education institutions, rather than with things like pastoral care, the welfare of students, their personal development and mental health. The system encourages and perpetuates this ideology of personal rather than communal ambition. And this reinforces barriers facing working class university students who we know tend to feel more alienated and less equipped to meet the challenges of university life. There's no Uncle Johnny who's a solicitor, for example, to read your law dissertation. You don't have the social capital that eases your path, certainly in a context of austerity and with growing student fees. These bridges, as the Karchik terms them, uh, are needed to challenge the ways in which the working class engages with the academy. I was lucky to find some of those bridges here at Trinity. We need to build more of them. Mm, okay. Thank you very much, Michael. Um, next, we hear from Professor Kathleen Lynch from the UCD School of Education. Um, Kathleen was previously the UCD Chair and Professor of Equality Studies until 2018 and she played a leading role in founding the UCD Equality Studies Centre in 1990 and the UCD School of Social Justice in 2004-05. Uh, she's published recently um, two papers on class inequalities in education that relate particularly to, to tonight, so I just want to mention those as well. Uh, the first one is Inequality in Education, What Educators Can and Cannot Change in the Sage Handbook of School Organization. The second one uh, is on economic inequality and class privilege in education. So, Kathleen, delighted that you're here tonight. The floor is yours. Uh, good evening. Um, I normally have slides, but I thought this was quite an informal event. I didn't realise it was so formal. Um, I'm very happy to be here and to present on this issue. Um, 
Uh, Daniel didn't say what I was going to talk about, but I, was going to, I said I'd talk about the role of the universities in society and how they reproduce and legitimate class inequalities. Let me just say, I don't really, I can, I'm very happy to talk about myself, but I don't think I'm that interesting, if I don't mean that, in, in, say I disrespect myself, but I was from rural Ireland, and I just want to say I never felt welcome in the university. I don't think it's just a class issue. If you had the wrong accent, you weren't part of the Dublin bourgeoisie, the intelligentsia class, you were an outsider. And I don't think it's simply, it's a class issue, but remember class takes many manifestations, and I will come to that. Um, working class Dublin is a very particular manifestation of class. But there are work. there are the people, for example, I think of many people who are from the Gelta to speak Irish, who would uh, learn English as their second language, and when they come to the university, they are often outsiders. There are many ways of being an outsider, but I don't, that is not the primary subject of what I wanted to say. I wanted to talk about five or six ways in which I think, and I'm going to talk more about the macro level, not the experience of the students, but the way to put ourselves. Because I think the academy itself, not just in its culture, but in its practices, institutionalized class-based injustices and gender and race and disability and, and many others in very profound ways. I mean, there's no question Ireland is a class and deeply class-divided society. You need only look at the way the city landscape is. You know, everybody makes sure they don't associate with people from different classes if they can possibly avoid it. If you have all these electronic gates everywhere you go, who are they excluding? They are excluding people they don't want to see, people they don't regard as equal to them. So the city is full of it, indeed it is part of the culture now. And I think it's not named enough in the university. And I start by saying, academics are selfish. I'm sorry, before neoliberalism, I've written an awful lot about uh, neoliberalism in the university. But being an academic is quite a selfish life. To be produce literature, to write, to publish, to do research, requires an awful lot of me-time and self-time. And that, I think, is an endemic cultural problem in the university. But it has been greatly exacerbated, of course, with neoliberalism and the inculcation into the university of capitalist values. Because in the book on new managerialism, which we wrote, and which I've now done another study across with colleagues across 10 higher education institutions, what is very clear that's happening is market values are being encoded in the institution systems and organisations of the university. So the individualism, which is, I would say, almost a challenge always in an academic life, regardless of the cultural or political context, is being exacerbated. Because from being an inevitability, you could say, it has now become a virtue. The more selfish you are, the more ambitious you are, the more virtuous you are. And I'm sorry, I don't think it's just true for people who are middle-class academics. The people who convert to academia and pass off as middle class or who are from ethnic minorities who want to succeed, that is the culture. So I think that is profoundly antipathetic to class, uh, challenging class inequality because it is about the pursuit of your own career. And if you, it isn't, as I say now, we're not just um, emulating, uh, servicing capitalism, which we do in all the professional faculties. Uh, and we even start to do it in the arts, humanities and social sciences, we are institutionalising and imbibing its core norms and values. We talk about people as products, as outputs, as deliverables. 
So we have reduced people to a commodity on the market. And once you have inculcated that culture in your organisation, you cease to see people as people. People who are vulnerable become a nuisance. In fact, I've heard that word for five, particularly to students with significant disabilities that have to be accommodated. I don't have resources for that. I don't have time for that. I need to get papers published, etc., etc. I don't have time. So don't give me the person who has any extra demands or needs in my time because my pressure of the market demands that I bring in money, that I publish, and that I do so at a rate which is not commensurate with the resources that we have. And that is a fact. There is a principle called, it's in one of our papers, called the principle of equality of condition. You cannot compete in a global market in a society or with resources that are not equal to those that you, to of your competitors. That is so fundamental that I cannot see how people do not see it staring us straight in the face. But we have this delusion in Ireland. We delude ourselves that we are going to be in the Yale and Princeton, etc. Give in mind the fact that they have billions in reserves, which in some cases, like Harvard, they don't even need to charge fees. They have so much received in income and capital. So this is the, where you put that pressure, we inculcate those values, and then we expect people to behave differently and to be concerned about low-income working class students, travellers, children from ethnic minority and immigrant backgrounds. It, it is not likely to happen. So what I'm saying is there's a new morality in academia. There is certainly a new morality from when I entered it. Because in, when I entered the university, it was in UCD, and I have to say, I do think in fairness to UCD, its access program is very successful, although it doesn't talk very much about it, maybe in public. But it is a, a change culture, and not just in, from the 10 colleges where we've done study lately. There is a very big shift in culture to producing human capital products, people for business, science, STEM, etc. And the downgrading of the arts, humanities, and social sciences, as if the critique and the critical thinking about humanity itself had become redundant. So I'm saying, I'm not saying, I wrote a book on mathematics education with colleagues in mathematics. I am not at all adverse to the importance of science and mathematics. But I'm only saying, when we commercialise ourselves, when we put ourselves on the market, we don't have time for people who may need support and extra support in our colleges. <coughs> the other thing I would say, which is very serious, and this is a very big macroscopic issue, and it's presented by the IUA and by the governance structures of the university, is government give us more money, government give us more money. That is right. But what is happening, sociologically speaking, is the privatisation of our universities. It is happening, by default, if not by design. Government funding for higher education in 2008 was 73% of our core budget. In 2015, the Cassell's report notes that it was came down to 52%. So that means the shortfall, and we have had a decrease and increase of student numbers of over 25% uh, in that period. So we have a huge income drop relative in absolute terms relative to the past and in relative terms relative to what we need with the students. But the problem is that what I, what, the way we represent it, we represent it as if this was just, we were cranks. And the, but what we're not saying is what's happening to us is what has happened already in America. I want to give you an example from a very good friend of mine, Professor Michel Fine, in the city of the University of New York. 
some figures she's just published last week, and they're well known in America. The University of Michigan, certain people in social sciences will be familiar with it, in the 1960s, 78% of its funding was from the state. In 2015, it was 16%. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, is that still a public institution? Ohio State, Minnesota, the state universities of Illinois, Washington, now have a state income of 10%. Are they state universities anymore? They were all where Trinity, UCD, Cork, Galway, everywhere else, uh, Limerick and BCU, etc. are now. And they are now largely reliant on increasing student fees, bringing in wealthy students, bringing in funds from grant, etc. and of course commercial funding and all kinds of private funding. Financial capitalism is meant to supplant what the state has left off. So I'm saying if we privatise our higher education, we won't have working class students. Because already in Cooney, which is uh, visited a number of times, the City University of New York, the proportion of students who are black has dropped dramatically. There was half the number of black young men there that there were about 20 years ago. Why? Because they don't make the grade. They have raised the SAT scores, so they don't make those grades, and therefore they don't even get in to the college. So what I'm saying is, if we start and don't think about privatisation, and challenge it in its commercialization. We won't even have space for ordinary Irish students, including low-income working-class students. So I would argue another issue that I feel very strongly about is there are no grants specifically, and I'm talking here about the university culture, which is what you just referred to there in your very interesting speech, uh, the last speech, and I read your book actually about uh, working-class uh, literature. Uh, but what I think is very significant, the Irish Research Council, the Science Foundation Ireland, have no grants for working class students at postgraduate level that are targeted specifically for them. I have supervised many students at PhD level from really low income families, lone parents, particularly women I want to talk about here, people who are struggling with no income. A few years ago, one of my PhD students and her family had no food at Christmas time. And she managed to finish her PhD through supports, etc. But that is not an unusual experience because there is no provision in our stereotypical view of an academic as somebody who's white. There is nobody black in this room, so we have a nicely racialized room. Uh, so we have, I doubt if there are travellers here, and certainly in my experience of treating traveller rights and owners and with travellers in UCD, you don't come out if you're a traveller in Ireland in a classroom, not in public. So what I'm saying here is, we have no means of bringing new voices in. And with due respects to the likes of myself, or people of my generation, I don't think we have created new spaces sufficiently. We need postdoctoral fellowships for travellers. We need them for students who are black and ethnic minority. We need to create new posts in the academy. I see we have a plethora of them in UCD now, but there are none of them that are actually going to bring in those voices. Because I don't care what anybody said to me, experiential knowledge of injustice in working class terms or in ethnic minority terms or disability terms or LGBT or whatever it is, that changes your perspective within the academy and you bring in new knowledge. You've prioritised different research, as women do when they come into science. 
We're not universally so, but we tend, because of our culture and socialisation, to have different priorities. And unless we have plans like that, we won't have new voices that will challenge the academy from within. Because I remember in my early days in UCD, the very, anyone who's here as a mathematician might remember Tom Laffey, the mathematician Laffey's theorem, and other people like him, Sean Deneen, they fought vehemently against UCD introducing scholarships for students with 600 points, and rightly so, because most of those who get huge points are already privileged. And every university in this country now has grants for the well-to-do, to when they come in. So what I'm saying here is, that is a big issue. There are also, uh, two minutes I gather, there are also <laughs> silences. There's a lot of silence. There is no mainstreaming of class inequality related education in our professional education. You get an odd lecture maybe about disadvantage or poverty. But the relational structural injustice where my privilege as a permanent pensionable employee is contingent on somebody else's lack of it is not explained. Because we are part of the problem is what I'm saying. We are a privileged elite. Those of us who have permanent jobs, I'm not saying we are the wealthy, but we are relatively privileged. And we don't question our own privilege because we have no means to do so within the structures and the way in which we work. There is no education provided, for example, for you to be a public servant. We are educating people to be private, for-profit intellectuals. And let me give you an example of this. In Theatre L, which is a big theatre, 500 students one day, I was giving a lecture, there wasn't full because it was Law and Social Justice, the new undergraduate degree. A lot of law students obviously there, and when some of them came up to me afterwards, it was in their penultimate year, saying they were delighted they got into wherever it was, Arthur Cox and someone else, they got into McCann Fitzgerald and all the rest of it. And I said it reminded me, when I was young, in the Catholic school, girls' school, people had a vocation. And they would tell you that they had a vocation and they had been chosen. And the people were chosen. They were chosen by capitalism and they were delighted. And their families were delighted. And as the accountancy people were delighted when they were in KPMG because that is the new vocationism in Ireland. That is showing that you have arrived. And I'm only saying is because we don't educate our lawyers, look at the courts. I absolutely think it is, cr sorry, criminal, pardon the pun, in. The criminal court the other day with a young man travelled, I won't even go there, prisons, complete waste of money, waste of time, complete and utter, destroys human beings. We have no discussion about that in this country. And they are working class, poor men, overwhelming. We have no discussion, no debate, but we have a big new criminal justice building down on the Keys. Wonderful. Spend a day there and you will see what a complete and utter waste of money the whole thing is. <laughs> And I'm saying that because most of the people who end up in prison are drink, drugs, or other problems. That's okay. But I feel very, very strongly that this silencing of public intellectual work would bring issues into the public domain, I think. Uh, so there's an histological exclusion, I suppose, is where I end. And I start cutting on even my wrote with paper with in 1994 about colonization and social class and education. And she had a poem wrote, written about it. We are the subject of books and papers, our lives recorded by the middle class, who steal our stories, use our oppression to serve their own needs. They won't let us pass. I won't go on. But the point I'm making, I suppose, is 
that we are beneficiaries of the class system. And I think the cultural colonization of working class stories, which is very much part of the social sciences, of travellers, which has gone on for 50 years in my experience of academia, I think there are serious questions that we need to ask about ourselves within. And the corrosion of character that is happening in academia under neoliberalism. Also joining the panel tonight is Gerhard Fiedler. Indeed, his work has also been exhibited in Germany, France, Britain, and many more countries. His current project is open in the Dr. Hyde Gallery. The project explores the idea of free thought, education, and class inequality, which we'll hear more about now. Hi. I am the wrong person to be standing in front of you right now, because <laughs> I am middle class, and I am value educated, and I am very lucky and very privileged, and my father worked very hard to send me to Belvedere, and I didn't deliver, and, uh, and I left without leaving cert, and I have minimal qualifications. Not academic. I was. I ran in fear from academia, uh, even though I tried it. Um, so I weirdly ended up in this room talking to you about <laughs> class, and um, and I feel like um, I feel like slightly like a fraud in doing something like that, and I mean that honestly too. Um, I'm not sure if I can get access to the desktop here. I'll just give you... Um, just going to stick up a couple of images from the... Um, yeah, forget that. Is that possible to do that just on rotate? Yep. Perfect. I'll just run off in the background there. Um, so, me as an artist, I, I, I'm self-taught mainly as an artist. And... Um, in being self-taught, uh, well, I, I ran various galleries and I worked in different various institutions like the Irish Museum of Modern Art and I gained courage to become an artist really by working with other artists. And in doing so, um, I've weirdly ended up working with people in my work. And in, by working with people, usually there's... I suppose I would have been quite cynical about community art and, and in, the in the noughties and uh, the early nineties uh, because there was an awful lot of committed people working in that area and I didn't see much value in it and I, 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 you know, I, I was more interested in the market orientated art places and um, actually just as a point of interest how many people have been into the Douglas High Gallery? under 50% which is good um, so um, around so I ended up making a lot of static type work that you'd find in a lot of the commercial galleries and but not very um, my work didn't really relate to the public domain very well and didn't relate to its community the immediacy of community very well at all. And um, 
I suppose when I became a father uh, and I became a homeowner, I had no interest in politics whatsoever. I, I, as, as a student, I, I just for, for the year that I was a student, I just drank a lot and I went out and partied a lot. And then I got very bored with that process of being a student. <coughs> and I had that privilege of being that way. And but then I wanted to work. I felt uh, I, I felt I wanted to just go out and work in the environment. And I felt that's a much better place for me, not college. So, and I got very involved in working in galleries like the David Hendricks Gallery. I don't know if any of you knew that one, but it was quite a prominent art gallery. And I was very young when I got into that. And I started to learn about the business of art. And uh, I started to sell art to quite wealthy businessmen. I was in a very fortunate position where I would meet quite wealthy business people who were quite well known in Ireland at that time. And um, I remember Charlie Hawley walking up the stairs to the gallery. And I greeting him as a very young guy in a suit and showing him the art and he purchased a couple of pieces and head off. So I had a very unusual experience and then I ended up going down to Temple Bar Gallery and Studios and um, working with a, a great man there called John uh, Hunt and uh, we worked hard to transform and protect artists who were working in the area. And then slowly but surely you're working in the Irish Museum of Modern Art. I, I got engaged with Helen O'Donoghue, who was the senior curator of education up there. But I had a very cynical approach, to, to be honest with you, about what Helen was doing. I didn't feel I felt it was like do-gooder art. You know, working with local communities was like do-gooder art. And then uh, I moved on, and I, I developed quite a good practice, and I developed some notoriety in production, art production, and I've showed internationally, like the CV says. But I think. When I went to Belvedere, although I left without a leaving cert, what Belvedere did instill, and I was lucky for them to do that, was being brought hand in hand as a young kid down Gardner Street with Father Reedy, who was the Irish teacher, but he was a man very involved in Vincent de Paul, and he showed us as we were walking around, he said, you help these people, this is what you're going to do. And I remember a pivotal point when I was in school, when we walked to Cork with people from Buckingham Street, that was 1981, so there was a group of about uh, 10 of us that, with 10 of them, we walked, so it was us and them scenario, and we walked to Cork, so we got to get to know each other on that walk to Cork, and we did get to know each other, and we got to like each other, and it was a really good experience, so it sat with me. So over many years I wanted to do a project around homeless, before the issue of homeless was, homelessness was headline news, and popular. And um, so a friend of mine, Declan Markey, and myself were uh, at parties quite a lot. And he worked in the homeless sector. And I, as an artist, was working in And it has been bugging me for many years whether or not I would engage. And eventually I got to a point, point many years later, where I wanted to engage. So I said to him, you help me understand your sector, I'll help you understand mine. And together we try and make something great. So we started out with nothing. I, I didn't go for Arts Council funding, which is the usual thing. I didn't brand the project. I didn't do anything like that. I wanted to learn. So Declan and myself got together. We were refused access to a lot of the homeless agencies because we didn't have any backup. And why should be people letting us into these spaces? This is before, like I say, it was headline news. So we went to the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive, and they sanctioned what we did. And we, I knew that we needed that umbrella organisation to be able to access certain spaces. And once they did that, I began to see what was really out there. I always knew there was class difference. 
I always, I grew up in Belvedere. I was from the north side. I go into the school. I get slagged for being from the north side. Um, lots of derogatory comments about north and south in those field paying schools. You know, that's the privilege of it, and that's where the slagging starts between the Black Rock boys and the Belvedere boys, the Mount Anvil girls, and the Loretta Eccle Street girls. You know, and there was a lot of exchanges through the course. So the prejudice is built there. The accents, the slagging off, the standing open mimicking and taking off the Dublin accents. That's embedded in the culture that I grew up in. So that's the one I wanted to be critical of and look at and examine. So we went out and uh, we went through the course of looking at Heed FM, uh, or Heed, uh, uh, which we titled the project, and uh, we set about producing a radio station. And in the course of doing that, uh, funding became available through the Arts Council for 2016. And uh, I applied for that funding on the grounds that it was going to be a portrait of young people 18 to 25, 100 years later, in the greater Dublin area. And rather than focusing on young people who were disenfranchised uh, and using that language, because in one way we had to straddle language which we really criticised that was used in the sector to describe people from different classes. Uh, we had to use the language to gain the funding, but then withdraw from the language once we had the funding. So it's a very difficult scenario to be. We had to make sure that we had to pull back from the language, because you can't walk into a working class community and go, oh, we want to talk to you disenfranchised people, you know. It's not a good thing to go, and it's not a good place to go. We understood that. So we set about doing projects, and homelessness is a very broad, it's too broad an area to describe under one term. So I don't agree with the term, I don't like the term. What, what's out there in the city, prevalent every single day of the week, is mental health issues, is addiction, is financial inequality, etc, etc. The list goes on. And that's what exists. So I became exasperated by that because it was a very exhaustive research process. And I said, I could be studying this for years and years and years and getting nowhere with it. And I could all end up in academic language or in a report and I'm actually going to deliver nothing. So we were mentored by a woman from Cross Care called Fiona Barry. And I said to her, Fiona, what's needed? What's missing? What isn't there? And she said, advocacy for young people 18 to 25. So we sat down and we said that was going to be the goal. And in doing that, we felt that it wasn't just fair to go into one district or one specific neglected area and focus on it, we said advocacy for all, age, all ages, 18 to 25. So that's what we went out and tried to deliver, a portrait of young people, which was anonymous, 18 to 25, that had love, care and compassion at the core of the project, but was going to not look at the negatives, was not going to look at how fucked up everything was and problematic everything was, but was going to look at uh, aspirations, what these young people had, what they wanted to go. The big factor for me was this. I ended up talking to young people from different areas and the big difference was, and you might think this is incredibly obvious, but for me it wasn't because to sit in front of somebody and have a relationship with them and know that they weren't going to be able to get what they wanted out of life is, was, was deeply uh, moving for me. And, um,
profoundly upset when you stand in front of someone and you know that they're not going to live the same life as you and there's absolutely no hope that they will. So, and I don't mean that to be over emotional. I'm in the middle of making something now that's very committed. And I met that every day. So, <clears throat> sorry, I didn't expect to be X Factor. <laughs> um, so, uh, it was very difficult. I found that very difficult and I felt very upset by that. I'm not someone who's political. Uh, I'm not interested in politics. I'm not interested in party politics whatsoever. I have no commitment to any political party. I don't believe in political governance the way it currently exists. I'm an artist. I exist and I function and my politic is worked through action and my own work. So, those communities, can I help? Do I help? Does my middle class approach uh, succeed in any way? The best piece of information that I got was this morning. Uh, if change is to really be affected, it should happen by people who come from those places, who developed, who've moved on, who've worked, have gone through extraordinary things to improve themselves. And they are the ones to go back one-to-one -to, -one to every individual kid by mouth. They need to be funded by the state. They don't need universities scraping, trying to set up pilot programs that work and are effectual when the government is just paying lip service to that. They need to be effectual out doing it. The class prejudice in the city is phenomenal. It is huge. And we all subscribe to it. We're all guilty of it. And the only way it will change is if we just make a change. It's very simple. So uh, the project that I have on at the moment is in the Douglas Hyde Gallery. If um, The Douglas Hyde Gallery is a fantastic bastion of where artists like me get over emotional <laughs> in it. And um, I would love you to tune in to uh, 105.2 Free Thought FM where I'm talking to wonderful kids uh, and wonderful academics like yourselves and wonderful um, professionals in the field and um, they're all willing to affect change for the right way and for the, with the right motivation and they're very inspirational people. I'm sorry I'm a little up for emotional and I'll try and get off <laughs> quickly so, and I just leave it open to the room after that and to Daniel and thanks for inviting me as well, it's an honour and privilege to be here. So, and I urge change, very simple, it's through action. Thanks.